open your Bibles to Second Chronicles six. Second Chronicles six. Tonight's message is entitled Solomon's Sermon and Dedication. After seeing the cloud that filled the temple in chapter 5, verse 13, Solomon speaks these words to the Lord here in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let's read them. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. So after seeing the cloud that filled the temple, as I said in, in chapter 5, he now is going to talk to God. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. And this is what he begins to say. Then the king, that is Solomon, turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying... Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Verse 6. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So in God's sovereign will. He chose Jerusalem to be the center and the capital of this earth. And one day it will be as we just finished studying Revelation. God chose Jerusalem as the place where the temple would be built. He chose David to be the king and now one in David's line. This is the sovereign and total will of God in making this choice. Many times, as we know, our choices are a whole lot different from God's choices. And this here is the sovereign will of God. God says, I have chosen Jerusalem to be the center and the capital of the earth. Where would you have chosen to be the capital and center of the earth? Hawaii? You know, Jamaica, some nice warm Caribbean island or wherever it might be that you would like to go. Well, God chose this little piece of earth that's rocky and kind of desolate. And uh, again, it shows God's sovereign will. And God has his will for you. He has his will for me. And for a child of God, he has a certain place for you, a certain house for you to live in. His will for you involves everything in your life. The big problem for you and me is getting into his will. Well, Lord, I, I... you know, I hear that that's your will for I see, but you know, I, I can I can I pick something different? We don't have that luxury. We need to accept His will and want to do His will because His will is the best for me. Though I may not understand that, I may not be able to see why it's best for me. But you're trying to figure out the infinite mind of God. We can stand around and we can argue with God all that we want about man having a free will and yet God being sovereign. But it would be a waste of time. Again, you'll never figure out man's free will and God's sovereignty. Again, it's the infinite mind of God. When you, are, when I, when you and I get into that place where God has put us, guess what? You will be in the right place. God's will is the important thing in our life. 
Let's look at verses 7 through 11 now. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, notice what God said, You did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, David, you shall not build a temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build a temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his words, which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel." Again, we've heard this for quite a a while now that David wanted to build God a house. That was the desire of his heart. But even though he didn't get to do it, it was accepted by God as though he did. You see, almost everything we do depends upon our motives. Why we want to do something. So we could say that Solomon's work was worthless if it wasn't done from a pure motive. The temple is now finished and it's very beautiful. It was very costly. It's very elaborate in its workmanship. And it doesn't lack anything that money and time, skill and strength could provide. But you see, what if Solomon did all of this just to make a name for himself? What if he did it just to become famous and have the world say, oh, look at him. Then what he did would have been something for men to see but it wouldn't have meant a thing to God because he didn't do it for the right reason it wouldn't have it wouldn't have brought him that is Solomon one step closer to God and there's no need to think that Solomon wasn't sincere and mag in magnifying God's name he said in verse 10 here that he would built the house notice for the name of the Lord of the God of Israel and his prayer shows a reverent and devoted spirit Secondly, this shows us that God counts a true and pure desire. God counts a true and pure desire. In other words, God was pleased that David wanted to build him a house. All right. But even though he didn't get to, God considered considered it done. God looked at it as if David did build a house because it was a wonderful desire that was in his heart. You see, it's our motive that drives us. Somebody might tell us, you know, what to say or do. The bottom line is we're the master of our own thoughts. Our desires and purposes are our own. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. You might be able to speak eloquently. Or you're not able to to help fight the battle against wickedness. Your desire to do something for Jesus, Jesus, your prayer, like, use me, Lord. That's my desire, God. My desire, God, is for you to use me. But maybe again, I can't speak eloquently. And maybe again, I'm not physically able to do anything. That desire for you to be used by God, it carries a lot of weight with God. Again, it's the motive in our hearts. Not so much actually what we do. There are Christians that truly and passionately want to serve their Lord. And they want to be a blessing to their brothers and sisters. But for some reason, God steps in and says, nope, not going to do it. And God is the only one who knows why. 
Maybe there's a loss of finances in your life. Maybe there's an illness. The desire is exchanged for the action. It's recorded in the record books in heaven. In other words, when I said the the desire is exchanged for the action, that desire, God counts as the fulfilling of your desire, as if you literally did it. And he records it in the books of heaven as done. As he said to David here, that you did well. Notice, you did well that it was in your heart. Also, it has real value. Your motives have real value. David told God what was in his heart. But God didn't give him the desire of his heart. But you see, his desire still had a lot to do with the end result. It led God's permission It led God's permission and direction to pass it on to his son Solomon. It led to Solomon's personal goal and determination. It led to the preparation and storage of many valuable materials. Was all of this for Solomon's good? Was all of this for Solomon? I think it would be fair to say that the temple was just as much the work of David, though he didn't build it, as it was for Solomon, who did. Because you see, the one who came up with the idea... And inspired the people with his thought. That's an effective instrument as the one who just as effective as the one who actually does the work. So the finished work is, in a sense, and maybe a large part of it, the fruit of the good thought that was in the heart. And we do a lot more than we know when we think about things and feel things in the spirit of our Lord. Now, in verses 12 through 17, we see Solomon's prayer of dedication. Well, I'm sorry, it begins with verse 12, but it goes all the way through. It's the prayer of his dedication of the temple. But in verses 12 through 17, we're going to see his spiritual attitude. Let's look at verses 12 through 17, and then we'll go through the verses. So Solomon's prayer of dedication begins here in verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it. He knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all your hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hands as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant, David. In verses 12 through 17, we see Solomon's spiritual attitude. And it's shown to us four times in four different ways. It says Solomon stood before the altar. It says he spread out his hands to the Lord. It says he knelt down on his knees. And then it says he spoke about those who walk. We see that he stood, he spread his hands, he knelt, and he he spoke about those who walk before God. So it would really do us good to look at these things that make up the right spiritual attitude when we go to God in prayer. 
Body attitude is important. It says he stood. Now, in Scripture, we don't have, uh, in Scripture, we do have a wonderful spiritual freedom. In other words, there's no rules in the Bible for any particular position in prayer. There's no specific posture that we need to be in in order to draw near to God and to have fellowship with Him. For example, the bedridden believer in the hospital or the person bound in a wheelchair, the worker on the job, they're all free to talk with God like the person who's on their knees before God. You see, God doesn't favor one position over the other. And we're so happy and thankful that we have this freedom that God gave us. But it's a good thing to remember that a particular posture may be more helpful in our spiritual attitude than others are. And when, a, and when in a particular posture, we more freely fall into and keep ourselves in that spirit of devotion than we can in any other. And that position is a worshipful spirit. A worshipful spirit. Again, it's not so much the position that I'm in, but it's the position of my heart when I come before God. Secondly, the spiritual attitude. The spiritual attitude. It's to be first and foremost in our minds. What's the attitude of your heart toward God? What's your attitude before God? You see, Solomon stood and then he spread out his hands before the Lord. What's the attitude in your heart toward God and Christ? Because this is a basic and important question. Because you see, the answer decides our position in or towards the kingdom of God. And if our spiritual attitude is unpleasant and it's hateful and, it doesn't, and it's uncaring, then that's the way we might behave. Or whatever we say. If it's hateful or uncaring or unpleasant, we may find ourselves standing outside the kingdom of God and being in danger of hearing the words, I never knew you in terms of a relationship. But if our attitude is one of hoping and trusting, and if our desire is to understand and please God, and if it's one of honest and sincere seeking, then even though we're not perfect in our behavior, and though there's still a lot to be learned and, and, and obtained, we're still right in the sight of God and we're counted among his servants and his friends. Attitude and motive is important. A Christian's motive, it's, or, or, it, they're, they're coming before God, it's important that our spiritual attitude is number one, worshipful, number two, prayerful, number three, loving service, and four, a concern for the coming kingdom of, of, of God. Now, let's read verses 18 through 39 as we finish the rest uh, of his uh, prayer of dedication, beginning with verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you. That your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven <clears throat> your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. 
If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they come back or return and confess your sin... Uh, and return and pray and make supplication before you in this temple. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you. And when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land, in their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know for you alone notice you alone know the hearts of the sons of men that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers moreover concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, Wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent, And make supplication to you in the hand of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done wrong, and we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you, notice, with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So we see here Solomon's righteous and moving words in his prayer. And we see them and again, they suggest to us what is possibly a false thought of God about the sanctuary. It was probably imagined by the idol worshipers that the temple where they worshipped was where God lived, their God lived, and that that would do it for them. Solomon had no such false idea about Jehovah God, the true living God, because he said in verse 18, notice the heaven of heavens could not contain him. How much less 
could the house that he built contain God. God's presence is not to be limited to time and space in our thoughts in any way. God is not confined by walls or spaces. And if we get into that habit of thinking about him as being present in some sacred little place, some little box that we put in him, put him and nowhere else, then we limit the unlimited God. Secondly, Solomon's righteous and moving words suggest to us what is the true thought of him in that relation. As those who worship God in the sanctuary, we should get used to thinking of him as the very present one. Verse 18, it says, will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Not only is God, God's presence everywhere and within any walls that may be built in his honor, but he's actively present there. And God is interested in everything that's going on there. And it says, Solomon said, his eyes are open day and night to see everything that's done before him. So the main thought of those who go to God's house should be that they're about to meet God. When we come into this building, and I said this before, our main thought should be we are coming here to meet God. Not to perform some religious duty. Not to come in and do our duty and then go home and say, oh, well, good, I went to church tonight, so I guess. No, I'm coming in here. I should be coming in here with the thought, I'm coming here to meet with God. I'm coming to stand and to bow before him and to talk to him. Just like I talk to my neighbor. Except only with the deepest reverence and in a most humble heart of worship. Our thought should be when we are in the sanctuary like that of Jacob when he was at Bethel. Remember, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. Also, it suggests that that God is waiting to be worshipped. Solomon's words from 12 to, uh, uh, to 39 were that he's waiting here to be worshipped. Solomon sincerely and repeated, wanted, uh, repeatedly wanted God to hear his servant and his servants. In verse 21, he said that he'd hear their prayer. He wanted God to hear their prayers. If we're involved in true reverent worship, hey, we don't doubt this. God is not only heard by us, he's always found by anyone and everyone who is truly looking for him. You see, God is looking for worshipers. Jesus said that in John chapter 4, verse 23, the father seeks such to worship him. Those who want to worship him in spirit and in truth, not in just any way they deem acceptable. All those who draw near to God with a pure desire to give him the worship and the thanks of their heart and to renew love to him and their relationship with him and, and their service to him and to ask him for his divine guidance and his enrichment, they can be sure they're not seeking him in vain because God says he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Also, Solomon's words here in his prayer suggest somebody who's ready to forgive. He said in verse 25 to the Lord, he said, Lord, when you hear, forgive. When you hear the, 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 the true and honest confession of their sins and, and the, the, the purity of their heart, and they want reconciliation and they want to be renewed, Lord, listen to them, forgive them. And we should meet God continually. 
or meet, you know, continually with God under a joyful, you know, sense of being his child. Like those whose transgressions have been forgiven. This is the true basis of communion with God. But even then, it's right to remember that our service is not perfect, so asking for forgiveness should be a constant prayer. Verses 40 through 42. Now we see David uh, uh, Solomon finish up here his, his prayer, prayer of dedication. So beginning in verse 40, I'm sorry, verse 40, he says, Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant, David. This is a prayer for the church, a prayer for its congregations. First of all, that God would make, notice, make them his resting place. Verse 41, he says, arise, O God, to your resting place. Taken from the battle cry of the nation Israel, when the ark moved forward to find a resting place for them in Numbers, the words suggest a request that Jehovah God would make the temple, which is a symbol of the church of God, as a whole and its individual assemblies, that God would make it a place of permanent dwelling, a place of rest, a permanent residence where he would never leave. God has promised to never leave us if we're walking in him. Secondly, also to make it a place where he would show his grace. I don't think Solomon just wanted God's symbolic presence. You know, in the building, you know, a house of God. Well, you know, just symbolically you, you, thinking that the, the house is, you know, is God's just, you know, it's, it's a place of, of God because it's the church. I don't think Solomon was just, you know, wanting a symbolic presence of God that was behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. But he wanted the conscience like David in, in, when he loved God's house or the psalmist in, in Psalm 84. He wanted to be in God's house because he wanted to be in the presence of the living God. And like I said, I don't think that Solomon just wanted God's symbolic presence behind the veil in the Holy Holies in the form of a cloud of smoke and fire. But he wanted what he wanted was Jehovah's real personal presence. But Solomon knew that if Jehovah made his home among them, it would be for the purpose of revealing himself to them as a God of love and mercy and grace. A God of life and light to his believing people. You know what? This is the same thing God in Christ wants to do in his church. Establish a real, though unseen, presence in the congregations and in the hearts of those who follow him. Also, Solomon wanted it to be a place of divine satisfaction. Because if it wasn't, then it couldn't be a resting place for Jehovah God. It has to be a place of holy service and celebration. But his holy nature demands more than than anything else, holy character and holy behavior. If God's going to meet us here. He demands holy hearts. He demands holy hearts and holy lives of the ones who worship him. 
Because if, if, you know, if we don't come before Him with holy character and holy behavior and holy hearts and lives, you know, he, he, He'll leave. He'll be forced to withdraw from men. He'll be forced to withdraw from their temples and their hearts and their services. God cannot dwell or live in, 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 you know, in, in sinful places or, or in sinful people. Remember, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1 that he'd remove his lampstand from the church, his light, if things weren't right. Also, that God would establish in them, that is, the, the churches, the signs of his power. Verse 41, again, Solomon said, Arise, O Lord, you and the ark of your strength. It's the same with Jesus Christ who can only rest in those churches and individuals where he sees faith. Where Jesus sees hope and love and repentance and humility and obedience offered in his name. That God would establish in those places the signs of his power. And that's the only way we're going to see his power through holy character. The outwardly dull and insignificant wooden box, the ark, Okay, for what it was, a box. It was a symbol of God's physical power, which normally worked through weak instruments, which was always based on needed holiness. Remember that, 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 that the high priest only once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. And if he wasn't right before God, he would, God would, you know, he would be dropped dead right there in that place. Sinful man cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. So hoping that the ark would make its resting place in the temple, Solomon practically asked that Jehovah would, through it as a means, show Israel his power. How? In protecting and defending them against their adversaries? In ruling and governing them by statutes and ordinances? And then lastly, in forgiving them and enriching them with his grace. And you know what? Jehovah God still puts within the Christian church, in the church today, the same three forms of strength. God dwells in her, the church, just like he did in ancient Israel. And he's their defender and he's their deliverer. And he's their redeemer and he's their friend. Thirdly, Solomon wanted to be a place where God would listen to the prayers of the people that went up from the hearts of his people. In verse 40, he said, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. You see, the temple, God's house was made, was designed to be a place of prayer for all people. A place for all people to go to with their prayers. For themselves on behalf of all sorts of people. The same characteristics belong to the church of the New Testament. The temple was to be a place of permanent indwelling. That is a place of rest, a fixed residence where God would never leave, a place where he would show his grace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. Why? Because you were bought. At a price, that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This body, this temple of the Holy, it belongs to God. Why? It was purchased. Like Peter said, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. Your blood bought. 
You're blood-bought. The magnificence, the costliness, the elaborate workmanship of the temple lacked nothing. It is a picture of the temple of the Holy Spirit who wants to live in your temple where He can show you His grace. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, at the door of your heart. And He says, If any man opens the door that is to their heart, He says, I will commend him, and I will sup with him or fellowship with him, with him and he will have that fellowship with me. God knocks on the on the on the the door the you know doors of, of hearts, and He wants you to open that door. He's not going to bust it down. He's not going to force it open, because He's a loving God. But He knocks on those doors, those hearts, wanting to be invited in. God all will also Solomon also wanted it to be a place, the temple for its ministers. He said in verse 41 that they might be clothed with salvation or righteousness. The two words in the Old Testament are synonymous or at least so connected that one implies the other. You can't have salvation without righteousness. And when you understand it correctly, salvation is the product, is the result of righteousness. The soul that's righteous righteous outwardly and inwardly is saved. Nobody is saved without that righteousness. Now, it's not our own. We have no personal righteousness. It's through Jesus Christ and His righteousness that I'm saved. So in seeking then that the temple priests might be clothed with salvation, this is what Solomon desired, that they might be personally good men. Upright and sincere in their hearts before God, righteous and acceptable in their walk before men like Noah was and Abraham and Job and David and Nathaniel. Because only righteous men in the sense of being justified and accepted before God as well as being renewed and having holiness, were acceptable to be ministers at God's altar. In the same qualification that the Church of Christ should always look for in those who serve in her pulpits. Holy character. Righteousness. Nothing could be more terrible than being insincere and immoral because an unbelieving and unconverted ministry could hardly be imagined as happening to the Christian church. The first essential of, uh, of the one who would preach the gospel is a hearty acceptance of the same faith and humility and love obedience that the founda- that's, that is the foundation of all true godliness. Second, that they might be clothed with salvation in their official duties. That is that their whole being should be absorbed and, so, uh, and it should be so obvious that others might see in the work of of God's people, that they would see the saving work of God in God's people. If necessary, as a sign of a true heaven appointed priest under the law, much more is this requirement as a qualification of the Christ sent preacher under the gospel, that they have holy character. Pastors and teachers in the New Testament church who, who 
who don't aim for that salvation for themselves and their hearers, man, they are trespassers into the holy office and don't belong there. If they're not, if their goal isn't to see people saved and themselves saved and and walking in righteousness, they're trespassing, man, in God's holy office. The one subject which are the one subject or object which has a right to control the time, the talents and the thoughts and the eloquence and the zeal of the Christian minister is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Solomon wanted the temple also to be for its people. Verse 41 says that they might notice rejoice in goodness. Notice the word saints. <laughs> it's to the saints. The word saints literally signifies kind, excellent, one who shows favor. That is, they're so pious, or one who has attained favor, hence beloved. And in both senses, they were God's ancient people, saints. They were object of Jehovah's favor. They were beloved for the Father's sake. And they were or should have been kind and loving themselves because they were saints. So in the same way, our New Testament believers beloved for Christ's sake. And they're commanded, notice, commanded to love one another. In several places of Scripture, God didn't say please or, or I suggest that you love what he said, you are, I command you to love one another. And some people say, well, you know, how can you command somebody to love somebody? Well, it's an act of obedience. It's not a feeling because so many people, well, you know, I don't have feelings for that person. You don't need feelings to love them. God commands us to do it. That means we can do it. And you know what? When we obey the commands of God, he will reward us with the feelings. That's what people don't understand. God rewards obedience. And it's been proven over and over and over again, many times in marriages. Through the years, I, you know, and when I've had a wife, I say, you know what, I, I, I just don't love my husband anymore. I, I've lost my feelings from him. I said, you haven't lost your feelings from him. You just quit loving him. I said, you go love him. Well, he doesn't, do, God doesn't say do it because he deserves it. God doesn't say do it because you feel like it or, or, or you know. And the, the amazing thing to me is, is how many times we don't, we don't run on feelings in other areas of our life. How many times do we wake up on Monday morning and say, I just don't feel like going to work. But I do because I know how it's going to affect my paycheck. And they'll see how many times I call out on a Monday and pretty soon I may not have a job. And especially those wonderful moms with children. Oh, how many times do they feel like getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning and changing nasty diapers and giving them baby a bottle? Thank God they don't run on feelings. None of us would be here. But they know what's best for the child. The employee knows what's best for his continued employment. He doesn't run on his feelings. How many times do we feel like punching somebody in the nose? We know that's not the best thing for us. 
But when it comes to a love, a husband or a wife, I've, I've just lost my feelings. I just, I, I can't love them anymore. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to love somebody because you feel like it. God commands us to do it because through obedience, that's when we, it happened in my own marriage. It happens in, through obedience. God says, trust me, I know what I'm talking about. And I've seen many people won back to the Lord because of their spouse's love for them, though they didn't deserve it. They did it in obedience to God. So again, we're commanded to love one another. The, tr- the traditional way the word saint is used is that of separated or holy. You are saints. You are separated to God. You're a holy one to God. And then there's the emotion, the gladness, the um- emphasis placed by both Old Testament and New Testament on joy. It says here at the end, notice, rejoice. In verses 40 through 41, it says rejoice. Gladness, the joy of knowing the Lord and walking with the Lord. It should especially belong to saints. We should be the most happy people in the world. Not based on what's going on around me. Because I'm saved. I have Christ in my life. I have eternal life and I'm going to heaven when I die. And I can even have a bit of heaven here on earth being a believer. You see, where there's no joy in a believer's life, there is reason to believe that person may not be a true believer at all. Or they have mistaken fears about God or or themselves. Or they're affected by some illness or bodily or mental thing that, that disrupts their peace. Yet the source of all joy for the saints of God is is God. And in closing, the last is, is the occasion, goodness. He speaks of goodness here in these closing verses. At the end of verse 41, notice there's the word rejoice and then the word goodness. For example, goodness in the highest sense, not just God's common gifts of of. The necessities that we, we, we need in life, even though a saint should rejoice in these as well. But with a joy that's, that, that those around us recognize that everything that I have comes from the Father's hand. But mostly God's highest gifts of grace and salvation. Man, that shows his goodness. And in God's great and unspeakable gift, his son, Jesus Christ. And Solomon wanted the temple to be for its king that God would regard him with favor, it says in verse 42. God's anointed here under consideration was Solomon. But where it speaks about the anointed, notice the capital A. It's talking about the great anointed one of whom Solomon was a shadow, a type, Jesus Christ. Psalm 45 says, who God anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows in Psalm 2, 6 and set as king upon his holy hill of Zion. The words of the prayer here can be applied to Jesus Christ, who is the church's head and king. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful prayer of dedication by Solomon, Lord, and so much of the meaning behind it, God. 
And Lord, may we as believers, saints, as you call us, God, in your word, those who are holy ones and separated to you, Lord, may people see the work of your grace and your mercy in our lives, God. May we carry ourselves in a walk of holiness and righteousness. Knowing that it's not us, but it's the righteousness of Christ in me, in this temple. This place where the Holy Spirit chooses to dwell and to work in me and through me that others may see you, God. And maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you recognize your great need for Him. Because apart from Him, you can do nothing, Jesus said. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And if God has touched your heart, God's word has ministered to your heart, <clears throat> and you know you need him, because everybody needs him. It's not any particular person who's in any particular situation, but we all need Christ. As we worship, you get up out of your seat, make your way towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we will pray together a simple prayer of faith. <clears throat>